0: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Wow. We've got a lovely, lovely listener, long-time listener who emailed in and she's had an interaction with her local council. She's going to share that interaction with us, but. Also, not only is she a great listener to the RCR, she is also one of the moderation moderators of Health New Zealand, the Linda Wharton Facebook page, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that because what Linda did and the moderators did to bring us together and to provide somewhere for those who were injured or had fa- family members that, who died from the jab, was truly amazing and i could never forgive the authorities nor facebook for shutting them down that lifeline was shut down for political reasons because it was counter the narrative not that it wasn't telling the truth it was telling the truth and that became the problem so good morning and welcome sarah
1: Good morning, Rodney. It's lovely to um, have a chance to talk
0: to you. Well, can I thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of all listeners, because we all followed that, followed you, that Facebook page, and we followed you on Telegram and then Twitter. And it was amazing group. And the support that you and the other moderators and the amazing Linda Wharton gave was second to none.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was a, a really um, amazing, very surreal time, to be honest. And, um, you know, the, the day that our Facebook page got shut down, um, <clears throat> it just really gobsmacked us all. We, we knew that it was coming, and we knew that it had been coming for quite some time. In fact, Linda would often go, well, we're still here today. No. <laughs> um, I,
0: I'm shocked at my naivety. You know what I mean? I just would never have imagined that thinking, breathing people could do that to a group. It just never occurred to me. And then I remember interviewing Linda when I was on another radio station and she said, oh, you know, you can't mention the V word. Mm. And I said, what? And she's sort of telling me they have these algorithms that would expunge it if it went up on Mm. YouTube. I thought she was barking mad. And she was 100% right. I never imagined that there'd be these algorithms patrolling the internet and dropping you out because you said vaccine. I'm just such a little baby, you know. I just, I feel embarrassed at my innocence. And I thought I was a cynical, old, hard-bitten person. But we'll get to that because... I want to explore, you've, quite amazing, you've had this interaction with your local council, and I want you to walk us through it, please, and then we'll get on to your moderation if we have time. So take us through your right. experience with the local council.
1: Okay, so um, so like um, many people out there, you know, I'd always been, um, you know, Pretty a pretty trusting sort of person, and um, and when COVID hit, um, you know, we we did the same thing as a lot of the rest of New Zealand was doing, you know, in terms of accepting, you know, what we were being told and you know following the the guidelines. Um, however, the more that that unfolded, um, the more my husband and I sort of started to sort of think, well, actually, something doesn't quite stack up here, and. We started to form um relationships with other people locally who actually had a similar sort of questioning way of being, I suppose. And we ended up with a very small little local group of people in our um in our town in Solway. And um <clears throat> we supported each other through COVID. And um, you know, what we were wanting to do was to try and find ways of actively being um, you know, creating ways of being more resilient as our small community. And um, and as we moved through the process, we sort of got to a point where, um, you know, the COVID thing wasn't really quite so valid, but then Cyclone Gabriel hit. And we started to sort of ask questions about, well, how resilient is our local community? What is our council doing to mm. ensure resilience? And... Um, and we had a, a meeting where we started to sort of put together some ideas about what we would ask our local council, um, <clears throat> with the aim of going to them and finding out what they were already doing, what they already knew, and what they were planning to do, rather than us making assumptions. Mm, and quickly. um, and so and and I'd have to say our council um the new mayor, Gary Caffel, set up. Um, a weekly drop in session as part of his Meralty. Um, and that allows anybody off the street to go in and talk to him once a week. There's two hours set aside, and he often has another counsellor with him. And um, the aim is to give people an opportunity to just drop in and talk to him about their concerns and whatever's going on, or what, you know, so on.
0: Can I just interrupt you there, Sarah?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, what was his name again? Gary Cafell.
0: How do you spell Cathal? Uh
1: C-A-F-F uh C-A-F-F-E-L-L.
0: Okay, Cafao. And was he a counselor before he was mayor or is he fresh to the job?
1: Yeah, so he would he had been involved in council for a, quite some time okay. prior to being mayor. He'd been a okay. counselor.
0: Mm. Okay, well, okay. So you got the drop in center. Carry on.
1: So um, so we thought great, you know, um, there were a number of things that came up you know, as as concerns for people, um, you know, things about flood mitigation and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, um, you know, the climate change stuff and um, 15-minute cities was another thing that got raised and, you know, a few other bits and bobs. So we decided that we needed to just pick one item to begin with and go in and have a talk. And there were three out of our original group who went to the first Um, drop-in session, and we decided that we would start off by asking them, um, you know, what they were, uh, you know, how aware they were around the 15-minute city thing and what that meant. Um, I won't go into that at this point, although um, I have been invited by Gary since to go in and do a presentation to council based on three sessions that we actually had um, discussing this. And um, but basically um, what happened as a result of the, um, the the four meetings that we've had to date was that we, we built up some level of relationship and trust and um, in the conversation. And I think that's what led to me being invited to go and actually talk to the council at large. And I've been given 20 minutes on the 25th of October to do that, which I'll be doing with a PowerPoint. Um, but really what the aim was was to go in and um, you know because I think over the last three years, a lot of people have gone through a place of you know where their trust in the decision makers um, in our society has been badly shaken. And um, and we it was really to look at how do we rebuild um, some of the conversation that needs to be had, how do we, get it so that, you know, they don't make assumptions about what people in their community want and we don't make assumptions about what we think they're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the comments that Gary made to me um, at one of the meetings was he said, you know, with, we turned up and he said, oh, look, I'm I'm really happy to see you guys. You guys are so so much more entertaining, he said, than the usual sort of gripes and mumbles that I get. Um, you know, you've okay. always got something interesting to discuss. And, um, and you know, it wasn't that he was rubbishing what other people had to say or anything like that because, he you know, he's obviously there because he does want people to have a voice. But he was also interested to look at the bigger topics and the mm-hmm. bigger picture mm. um, outside of just, you know, the small day-to-day things. And um, so the next thing that happened after that was um, there was a um, – a post that had been going around the internet and it had been put up by somebody um, who had sort of jumped on, um, you know, the, the concept that ratepayers were being put up as collateral by their local council so that they could borrow money from overseas banks and that this was opening ratepayers up to a high risk because if the loans were defaulted, then those people who, you know, um, were lending the money could come in and basically take, you know, the assets, um, the asset base of the ratepayers. was in effect Mm -hmm. what they were saying. There was a lot of quite inflammatory language, I felt, in that post. Um, But it was causing enough concern where I, I said to our little group, look, how about we just go and talk to the council about this and we find out how much truth is in this rather than, you know, allowing it to ping-pong around on the internet and being part of the ping-ponging. How about we go and actually talk to them and find out what the truth of the situation is and how much, you know, validity there is in this. So we went and had a conversation with Gary and and he was really upfront with us. He actually said, look, I can't answer your questions, but you need to talk to the financial manager of the Masterton District Council um, David Paris, and um, so we we ended up being able to see David Paris that day, and I would have to say it was really really worthwhile. He was great. He actually s- sat down with us. He gave us about half an hour of his
0: time. Um, well, may I again just interrupt, Sarah? I'm talking mm. to Sarah Bisley on Real Talk uh, with Rodney Hyde on Really Check Radio. Um, I can imagine them doing this, Sarah, because you've got a wonderful manner with you. <laughs> and you. Uh, you approach it not as um, someone coming in, because oftentimes, I know I do this when I'm interacting with authority, by the time I get to the meeting, I'm in high dudgeon and I'm sort of not calm. And I can imagine you approaching it um, very calmly and very politely, which makes such a difference. So good for you. So carry on. You met the finance guy.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so we we went in and um, had a list of questions and, you know, um, we asked things like, you know, are the rate payers being used as a collateral, you know, against the loans and who are the loans being, you know, who are they, uh, who is the loan provider and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, And, you know, what was quite interesting was there was some truth in
0: yes, indeed.
1: what had been said, and that was that the um the ratepayers are indeed, you know, put up as collateral, just in the same way as taxpayers are put up as collateral for government loans. It's very much the same process. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's their means of being able to guarantee that they can pay back the debt. Um, but what was' um not correct was the fact that um, our local councils don't borrow from overseas banks they actually borrow through something which is called the local government funding authority and the local government funding authority actually acts a little bit like the Reserve Bank in that it creates bonds and then it puts those bonds out for sale um, to investors and um, those investors come in they buy the bonds. Um, they know that there is risk attached to them. Um, I was trying to find out whether all of the um, <clears throat> bonds were secured or unsecured, um, and the only thing I could find out was that the last lot that were put up in April were actually unsecured bonds, which means that the people who are buying the bonds accept that there is risk, and if there is a default, then they've got no comeback, basically, um, you know, to come and take assets or anything along that sort of line. Um, so they create these bonds. Um, what was also interesting was that the shareholders of the LGFA are actually all New Zealand councils and governments. So there's 80% shareholders in the councils and 20% shareholders in local government. So the LGFA itself is actually a completely New Zealand-owned entity. Um, and that the investors that are buying the bonds are 70% New Zealand investors. Um, and, and they include things like, um, you know, our KiwiSaver investors and so on. And 30% are international investors. So the actual exposure to overseas funding is actually quite low. Mm. So, so that was interesting. Um, because I felt, you know, that it means that there is actually a bit of comfort in knowing that what we are dealing with, even even if our councils do borrow money and and they still need to keep an eye on how much they're borrowing, obviously, but at least they're borrowing in-house, so to speak, rather than, you know, becoming beholden to a a much bigger entity overseas that we have no control over the behaviour of. Um, The other thing that that we found as a result of, of this, well, one of the questions that we put through to um, David Paris was, well, what happens if we get a situation where people can't afford to pay their rates and they they default, and what would happen if you had a high level of default? Um, and he said that there was a safety mechanism built into the way LGFA is is run, and that basically what they have is um, a situation where. If a, a council does default, um, then there are other councils. there is a set number of councils within the, the, the setup or the framework that act as guarantors. and that means that if you get a council that does fail, then the other guarantor councils step in and they actually pick up the um, debt repayments until that council perhaps can get on its feet again or you know whatever some other arrangement is made. So, sorry, were you, did you want to Oh, I was going
0: to say, you were going to answer. Did you come away then somewhat reassured?
1: Well, it was reassuring um, in that, you know, a lot of the stuff that had been said was basically that we've got no control, it's all overseas owned, da-da-da-da-da, and if it all turns to custard, we're going to get people coming and taking New Zealand land and New Zealand property and, you know, whatever. And we've got no control over it, so it was actually quite a scaremongering type yes. of.
0: I'm quite pleased post. to hear all this, Sarah, mm. because I feel this is a bit of a candid camera moment, because I'm responsible for setting that funding agency up.
1: Right, huh, so. interesting.
0: <laughs> so I was a bit scared I was going to hear, and I'm up for it. How disastrous it is, or 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 was. So, um, I was Minister of Local Government from 2008 to two thousand eleven right and um i um was responsible for that setting up that funding agency so um and it's very it's very easy. It shows you how very easy it is to scare people on both sides. Government can scare us, and then we get distrustful of government. And then someone can say something and they're not wrong, but it's the way they word it. Um, yeah. I can tell you the history of it. It came, it, local councils had been talking about it for some time. And you may recall that back in 2008, John Key came to be prime minister and the economy was faltering. And there's a lot of concern about the future. And as new governments want to do, they want to show that they're very agreeable, and I wasn't a particular fan, but John Key set up, a—I think it was called a job summit or something in 2009, and everyone turned up with ideas for um, how to get the economy back on track. And the only two ideas that I remember was one was the bike trail for money you New Zealand to the other. It's right. going to be this big economic boost. And the other was local council saying that they were struggling um, with raising money for infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And the problem being that you might be a small council and I don't know, you want to build something, a water reticulation works and you had to raise the money. And if you're a small council, you don't have a sophisticated uh, treasury body. And also, investors looking at you think, oh, a key Council, you know, it sounds a bit dodge. Never heard of it. <laughs> and they don't particularly want to invest their money. So <clears throat> it was worked out, and the work had been done before I got to it that if you set up a separate funding agency with all the local councils as constituent members, they would be able to raise the money without actually having to have, I don't know, I forget how many councils there are now, but say there are 50, 80, um, having 50 to 80 treasury departments. They could just have one big one. And also their risk would be lessened and therefore they would have to pay less interest. So that was the logic of it. Um, And, of course, the funding agency has an incentive to keep an eye on councils that they're not getting their debt too out of whack. (laughs) So that's the history of it. And um, I have to say, someone was going, um, was very upset about it on social media, one of my friends. And I thought, oh, that sounds familiar. I think that was me. And I had to look up and I had to own up that I was the one responsible um, for this funding agency. So I was with some trepidation that I was coming on to hear what you had discovered. Cause I thought, if, if it's a complete disaster, I'll have to mm-hmm. own up. So uh, there you go. And it's also a terrible, frightening thing to realize that w- government and councils. When they borrow money, they do get it cheap, but they get it cheap because they have the power to tax. Mm. And they're not like a business or you and I, where whether I'm lending you money, I look at you and I think, oh, I hope she's good for it. Or, you know, that business that I'm lending to might fall over. So there's a big risk. But when they look to invest in a government or a local council, they say, well, there's no risk because they can just keep putting taxes up and taxes up and taxes up. And people will keep paying and paying because they don't have a choice. If they don't pay, if you're a rate payer and you don't pay, ultimately you can be sold up. Your property can be taken and sold and what you owe in rates deducted and you get the rest. And of course, if you're a, if you're in New Zealander, not paying your income tax, you can go to jail. And so the powder tax is a, judge in America who described it as the power to destroy, Mm. because it's money and assets taken off you compulsorily. And so the people that are scaring us about this awesome power, they're not wrong. Uh, While your name and your property isn't written um, in the debt instrument, you are actually uh, by virtue of owning a, being a ratepayer or being a citizen of New Zealand, you're ultimately liable for all the debt that your council and your government take on your behalf, which is terribly frightening. Mm. Um, and, of course, that's where New Zealand got to in 1984. We got so indebted that we were in danger of losing control of our own economy because the International Monetary Fund, if a country gets it in a really bad way, the International Monetary Fund will actually march in Mm. and start saying, here's what you have to do. Mm. And um, obviously, it's like if you're a citizen, if you owe a lot of money, um, you can lose control of your life. And a Mm. government or a council Mm. can lose control of its ability to make decisions because Mm. it owes such a lot of money. So good on you. Mm. I'm very proud of the mayor and the mayor allowing you and the finance officer being so willing and able to talk to you.
1: Yeah, well, it was um it was really good. And you know, I think, you know, like in the what I would term as the sort of freedom communities, you know, mm. there has become a very high level of distrust. Um, you know, and what it has done is it has actually stopped, I think, a lot of conversations from being had. Mm. Um, you know, our conversation actually continued on, you know, um, because, you know, we, we established that, um, the LGFA actually, I think has been set up very well and it has got a safety net within it, which is the guarantor council system, um, but, you know, all the issues that you've just raised about, you know, the potential risk for both taxpayers and ratepayers is actually very real if you very have huge. government that, you know, or a local body that chooses to act, <clears throat> you know, in a…
0: Imprudent way.
1: Um, imprudent way, exactly. And so, you know, we, we sort of did push that point a little bit with um, David Parris um, because we said to him, you know, <clears throat> like, if you did get a situation where, you know, sure, you know, that safety mechanism within the LGFA works, if you've got one council that's defaulting and the other councils can kind of pick up the slack. But what happens if you get a situation that hits a country and you suddenly get 40% of ratepayers can't meet their rates throughout the entire country? What happens then? And um, and he basically, um, you know, Was saying, well, in in that situation, yes, that would be where councils would go into default. Um, You know, and obviously it would lead to a a massive level of instability, Mm. whether the government would then try and step in, but then, you know, the government would just be end up taking up more debt and you would end up with the situation snowballing anyway. So, um, but what I think was really good was we actually, got david thinking about because i think that he had gone into that conversation and up to the point where we raised the thing about well what happens if 40 percent of ratepayers say for example defaulted through new zealand i don't think he'd, he'd possibly sort of ever given that much thought because the lgfa was set up the way it was to him it was a very safe mechanism and that was all good and he did say that you know on the whole um you know they do try to keep the level of borrowing down and, you know, act responsibly. I mean, although there are a lot of ratepayers, myself included who would dispute that, you know, our money is always being used in the best way. Um, But it was interesting when we raised that with him because it was sort of almost like, ah, okay. And getting him to look outside of that and and Mm. think that much, much bigger picture. And so the end of the, um, at the end of the, talk with David, I ended up writing an email to Gary Cafell to tell him what the outcome of that conversation was, because I felt it was really important for Gary to become educated as well. It wasn't enough to just have that conversation with David Paris. I wanted Gary to become aware, because he clearly didn't know the answers to a lot of the questions that we were asking. So we thought, well, it's a great opportunity to educate our mayor. And I and I asked for my email to be passed on to all of the councillors so that they became aware of it. And we basically ended up, you know, saying that this just really reiterates the responsibility of councils to ensure that they are responsible borrowers and that really what we should be doing is looking to spend money only where services really need to have borrowing applied. Mm. Um and we also asked David, um, you know, was there an opportunity where the council could look at, perhaps looking at building a bit of a surplus, like looking to pay off debt um, rather than constantly being in the borrowing cycle? And his initial response was really interesting because he said, oh, you know, people would jump up and down if we did that because they'd see that we had all this money and, you know, we weren't doing this and we weren't doing that with it. And I and, and we basically said to him, um, well, actually, a lot of that, is about being being in good communication with your local community. If you explain to them why you're looking at your priority being to pay off more debt, and we're not going to have so many of the nice-to-haves or the vanity project type stuff, but we're going to stick to our core infrastructure requirements and we're going to actually look at paying off debt I'm sure that a lot of people would be on board with that if they mm. understood the reason why you were doing it. So, um, so we we sort of just put that into the conversation, and um, and we will catch up with Gary, you know, a little bit further down the line. Well, um, about all of it,
0: it's great. I think Gary is amazing because he's mm. prepared to admit what he doesn't know. Yeah, he's prepared to admit. Civil sur- uh, citizens into the civil service to ask their questions mm. I'm not. most mayors wouldn't let their councillors talk to the financial officer outside of a council meeting mm. Mm. and then um, he's open to you saying well here's what we find out and now he's invited you in you're very very lucky he sounds a marvellous politician because um, I think we as politicians uh, we don't know What's going on underneath us, and you—you be a mayor, or in my case a minister—and you inherit this huge bureaucracy with its own agenda. Oftentimes, you know, following the UN agenda because that's what we've signed up to, and you're not aware of the machinery under you. And your spell um, as minister or mayor is relatively short. Um, when the bureaucracy, it's their entire career. And it's sort of a self perpetuating uh, monster, which has got terrifically big. Difficulty that you face as a mayor or politician is there's no votes in getting debt down, but there's a lot of votes in throwing money at people. Mm. And they don't really. my, My horror, my horror was in 2005. And I was campaigning in Epsom, which included Remuera, which is a very well-off part of Auckland. And I was walking down the streets and these well-off people told me they were voting for Helen Clark, the dads, because she was going to wipe the debt off their kids who were getting their law degrees. And I looked at that and obviously they're voters, so I couldn't abuse them. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But you're looking at them, and you're thinking, here you are with a house, two flash cars, kids at university going off to be lawyers, and you're voting to remove debt that your adult child has willingly entered into with the government of New Zealand, And you're going to vote for Helen Clark who's going to shift that debt onto kids not yet born who Mm. will never get to go to university Mm. and will be working their entire lives and lucky to own a house. Mm. But it worked, got her elected. Mm. And it's tough because I tried to explain that in a sentence, but he didn't care because he was voting selfishly Mm. so he would be able to have what a holiday that year extra or something or his daughter would you know go skiing I just find that so terrible and here's Helen Clark she doesn't care that that debt is going to be pushed onto all New Zealand Mm. um, into the future all she cared about and I'm not picking on her all politicians are the same They'll spend money, your money and your children's money, and yet unborn children's money, to win an election. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. there's no protection to us from that. And when yeah. they borrow that money, they indebt every one of us. So exactly as that skew mm-hmm. email said, you know, they they mortgage you mm-hmm. and your ability to mm-hmm. produce an income. It's a stack of cards, too, if you think about it. This is what used to keep me awake at night. When I became local government minister, I was sort of shocked at how councils were so financially strapped and they couldn't afford to do their basic infrastructure, you know, keep water safe, keep the sewage in the pipes, not running in the waterways. All the basic things you think about a council doing, they could do the put the statue up, you know, run a pride festival, But in terms of doing that basic infrastructure, um, they were struggling. And then you think, well, their their base and their rates are coming in on property values. And we can readily imagine, can't we, property values falling quite dramatically in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the ability of councils to... Maintain their spending and pay off their debt is severely curtailed without actually a massive increase in rates. But their ratepayers are struggling because they've just lost a whole lot of value in their property. Mm. So it could very, very quickly turn south.
1: Mm. Yeah. And it was interesting because David Paris did acknowledge, you know, that there was that possibility. Mm. And, you know, that was one of the things that, um, you know, we're, You know, we basically, um, in the email that I sent, Gary said to him, you know, that given the global economic situation and the, um, you know, all of the um, economic indicators that are out there, it is even more important that councils do, you know, act responsibly in terms of what they're investing money in. And, um, you know, and they do have... um, you know, a responsibility to use money wisely as far as their local communities go. And it's interesting because, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the whole globalism thing, um, you know, and I mean, that's a huge rabbit hole that, you know, lots of people have gone down, um, you know, and I'm certainly not unaware of, you know, a lot of the implications of that and how it all hangs together. Um, I've come to a very simple I suppose, a a simple way of being able to deal with that because I think it's very easy to feel very powerless very quickly. And, you know, feeling powerless just makes people feel angry and it often makes them less effective at what they can do. And uh, my dad has a very great saying. He says, focus on what you can control, not on what you can't, because it's a waste of time otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, And I got to the point where I just thought, well, you know, if we, all of us... Got involved in shoring up our local communities, and the you know the way that I've termed this um, when we've spoken with Gary is wanting to preserve the integrity of our local communities. Mm. So you know how do we do that? And that comes about by more of us getting involved at this level. You know, talking to our councillors, talking to the decision makers, but you know, going in with that attitude of not assuming that they're doing it all wrong, because the, the, the best way to get someone's back up and shut down the conversation is to have them think that, you know, you think they're doing it all wrong. It's always better to go in with the um, aim of asking questions and then gently sort of coming around and yes. and looking at it as, well, that, you know, have you thought about it from this perspective or, you know, whatever? Um And I think that's really what we've been doing with Gary and and. There have been two other councillors that have been in two of the meetings. Um And I think it's a, con- a really constructive way of working. And the, the biggest antidote to globalism is localism.
0: Mm.
1: So, you know, if every single one of us who has the time and the energy and the inclination was to start engaging with our local decision-making people at that level then I think we would they would find it a lot more difficult to actually push centralisation and all of that side of it.
0: And, of course, not so long ago, literally that was how it was done. Mm. Admittedly, council's functions were much less than what they are now. We didn't put the demands upon them that we do now. But, you know, it was your neighbour that was the mayor or the mm. councillor, and, you know, they'd volunteer, and it was like a community or a club but now they've become monsters. Uh, when I, when I um, set up Auckland Council out of, what was it, eight local councils and one regional council, we counted up that the councils had 109 functions given to them by statute. Right. So they had 109 things they had to do. Well, no organisation can do 109 things, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was before they got to do what they thought they should do. Um, and we came across truly horrific things. <laughs> the councils couldn't tell us um, how many people they employed in a swimming pool. They didn't know. Right. And we found halfway through the process that there was an entire office that no one knew about or told us about that was just missing on the books. And so, you know, it's a very human organization, and you're you're absolutely right. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've been sitting in my MP's office, because MPs run a similar open-door policy, and it would always be a man, and they'd walk into your office and they'd sit down, and they'd proceed to tell you everything you were doing wrong. (laughs) And what you didn't understand and how it should be done. One of them was Colin Craig, actually. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, this is beginning to pee me off, right? Because (laughs) like, I'm not stupid, and I'm working every hour that God gives me. I'm trying at my utmost to do my best, and here's someone literally walked off the street who thinks they know everything. And uh, I know I don't know everything, but don't just come in and harangue me, it just gets me Mm -hmm. upset. And um, so the approach that you're taking is so wonderful. Now, I've got a question for you. Have you any interest yourself in standing for council? Or I don't know, in your area, do they have community boards?
1: Yeah, they do. And it's interesting because um, I've had a couple of people who said to me, you know, um, that I should stand for council and what have you. I think at the moment I've come to the conclusion that I'm in a better position to be mm. able to do things by not being in that place because I think as soon as you go into being a counsellor, there are certain rules that you have to abide by or lines that you ha- – there's a perception that you have to toe. Mm. Um, whereas coming at it from this perspective, um, I think there it, it, it's really an opportunity to open up a conversation in a completely different way and, um, and you know, I, I think it's also, um, yeah, I, I think there's more potential for more education to happen as a result.
0: And how, if I may say so, you're very cool, you're very calm, and you're very analytical, right, <laughs> which is not common. Is that through your training or work experience or is that just you?
1: Um, I don't know, but I know in my school reports, my parents always, you know, they were like, they're every like well, a lot of the school reports have come through with Sarah is quietly confident and they'd be like, oh, well, that doesn't sound very exciting, but, you know, <laughs> I suppose it's good.
0: <laughs> but you're not a trained accountant or economist?
1: No, no, no. I'm actually a, um, a functional medicine practitioner and medical herbalist.
0: Oh, um, wow.
1: and I'm trained in, in, uh, like I, I treat people as complete systems. So I suppose I'm a very systems based person. Mm. I've always uh, like, I, I don't like what I call fudge factor. So I've never been a very good person at, um, sort of just accepting something on face value. I want to know why it works the way it does and what, what it's connected to. And that if I was to do X, what effect would that have further down the line? You know, so that's kind of like I guess how my brain is
0: organized. Um, and, and explain to me functional medicine.
1: So functional medicine is literally um, looking at the functional um, the function of the body um, from a medicine perspective natural medicine perspective. so mm. you literally are looking at a person as a complete system you're looking at where the things are that are not working well and why that might be. And um, looking at um, how you get to the root of the the cause, you know, of the problem for the person that you're working with.
0: Um, you you must look. I think they call what we go and see our GP for. Is that called allopathic medicine? Is that the phrase? No,
1: no. Allopathic is your standard GP model. So yes. I'm I'm not a. No, no, I'm no.
0: A, I know that the opposite to you is allopathic. Yeah. You must look at that. And think, well, it's good if you have a broken leg. Um, It's good if you're in pain and you need some pain relief, like a headache. Mm. But there's a certain aspect to it which feels irremediably broken. Mm. And my mother, God bless her, um, died last year at 94. And I used to take her in to see the doctor. And, like, the doctors were very nice, but it was sort of horrific because the bloody pills they're giving them. Mm. And, like, my mum knew that she was soon to die, Mm. but it's like this, they can fix you and keep you running forever, just take more pills. And she was having all these complex array of side effects and when you'd question the doctor they didn't know it was all very this is a new pill it was all very experimental Mm. and yet if my mother went to the doctor and didn't get pills she didn't think it was worthwhile to go and see him in a way you know what I mean Mm, mm. and you get 15 minutes and um, she went to a lovely chiropractor who was Absolutely superb for her, which I guess is a sort of you know functional medicine. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, it's not working looking at the parts and sending you off to a specialist at every opportunity, and it's not working. You go and see the doctor and get a prescription and walk out. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and <laughs> it's sort of been a victim of its own success in its early years
1: yeah well i and think you, the
0: thing you wouldn't dismiss i guess you wouldn't dismiss the you know you don't dismiss it mm-hmm. but there's a limit to it
1: yeah i my approach is that you really want to use the best of all the tools that are in the toolbox yes and there is a time when <clears throat> something like steroids or antibiotics or whatever you know they can be life saving mm-hmm. there's no two ways about that mm-hmm. Um, but you really want to be looking at, well, why did the person go into that place in the first place? And what can we do to actually correct the real reason as to why that happened? Mm. And then, you know, look at how do we reinforce the resilience of the entire body system? Mm. Um, and you know, that's the difference. So I'm, I'm certainly not against allopathic medicine, but I, I believe that it's not the answer to a lot of what is going on. It's a good ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And there are some things that can buy time, um, or you know, if you've got somebody for example who's had a thyroid gland removed, you will never have a person who can make their own thyroid hormone, so they have to be on medication for that.
0: Yes,
1: but what you can do is you can look at well what what was the what are the other things that are going on with that person, um, and how do we get their body system so that it's using the medication more effectively, reducing the side effects? How do we get them into a situation where they don't end up with further damage happening through things that have not been addressed? Um, You know, using that thyroid removal as as an extreme example. A lot of the people I work with, I do an enormous amount of work with people who've got allergies and gut issues um, and hormonal issues. Those would be the three things that I most commonly deal with. Um, But... um,
0: Presumably, because there's been a rapid increase in all of that. Presumably a lot of it is a more toxic environment um, poor different nutrition, not such a healthy nutrition that we used to have because all this is on the rise. and You see it with young children, don't you? Mm, mm, Which yeah. never used to be a thing. Yeah. And then you just see that we were growing up and I, it was... Sunshine, fresh air, exercise, and good food, healthy mm-hmm. food grown mm-hmm. in the garden and cooked by mum. Mm-hmm. and now you look at a person's diet, and these kids can have horrific diets. Mm-hmm. People and can, you can have look horrific at horrific diets.
1: Yeah. And you can look at the fact that there are a whole lot of other things that have changed over that same time frame. You know, the exactly. level of stress, yes. the exposure to you know electromagnetic um, yes. You know, radiation Yes. um you staring,
0: know staring at your phone
1: oh absolutely and and there are all sorts of things you know um and it will never be just one thing that's created no. a health outcome there will be multiple things that come together that affect that individual's health and well-being um you know how did, did you get into so this important.
0: how did you get into this field
1: Um, through my own health issues actually I was when I was in my early 30s I was um, having some very substantial problems and um, and I I, similar to your mum I actually ended up going to a chiropractor and he took one look at me and said well a young woman of your age shouldn't be having all these problems so he had a more holistic view and he actually gave me some advice which I followed and this was after about four years of going through the medical system and, and in the end being told, you know, that I had to stay on medication basically because that was the only way of controlling what was going on. And I, I was thinking, well, there's got to be a better solution than that. And, um, and I followed his advice and that's what got me started because I started to realize there was another way of working, which was completely different and it was effective. And, um, and so then I, looked at retraining and and as these things often do Rodney when when you start to open yourself up to different opportunities different ways of seeing things um the doors just suddenly started to open I had people talking to me suddenly about herbal medicine I'd never been you know I'd never been on my radar but then I I have a a strong intuitive aspect where you know and and I am um you know a, a christian and i i basically i just said to god look if you're trying to show me something then show me what it is and and open the doors and and i'll walk there and um and so as i say i had all of these people that were suddenly talking to me about you know herbal medicine and i stuck a very tentative toe into the water by going and doing a weekend course for a year um and within three weekends of doing that, I just knew that was where I was meant to be going. I already had a, a love of plants, and I I thought, what, what are my real passions? And they were plants, and they were making a difference to the quality of other people's lives. And I thought, well, how on earth do I bring those two things together? And that was when I started to get people talking to me about herbal medicine, and that's where I started. So I, I trained as a medical herbalist in the end. And um, and then I went on this, what has been a lifelong journey and and will continue, I suspect, until the day I die, of always learning more about how I can work in an even more holistic way for the people that, that work with me.
0: Well, um, I can see you and sadly listeners can't. And I have to say, you're a picture of radiant health. Um, you look <laughs> extraordinarily, you. You, you actually radiate. Goodness and health. We have Sarah Beasley, Beasley, Beasley Sarah Beasley. i Do apologise, Sarah Beasley, on the line. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's Really Check Radio. Sarah's a great listener to the show, to Really Check Radio. She has to be thanked from all our hearts for being a moderator for Linda Wharton on Health New Zealand Forum on Facebook which was such a lifeline to so many Kiwis, including me. And we won't go and talk too long about it being taken down, but how disgusting and evil was that? And she's been involved at a local level approaching the council, and you can tell by her manner how wonderful she would be at it and what a success she's having at it from the outside just going along and listening and talking and um, not getting hit up, which is something I have to learn. I'd love to have her back to discuss functional medicine. I'd love to have her back to discuss um, the experience of being the moderator on Health New Zealand, the forum. And I'd love to have her back to discuss Christ because she touches every base. And I'm just enjoying chatting to her, because how often these days do we find ourselves talking to people and it's all me, 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 and boring stuff, you know? And we've just met Sarah, and we've had this wonderful exploration of your experience in your life, Sarah.
1: Well, thank you, Rodney, and, um, you know, I I just am so grateful for Reality Check Radio and all of the work that it's doing because mm. it's provided a much, much needed, um, you know, voice, and I think you've just hit on it beautifully, that whole exploring of a conversation mm. um, because that's so badly needed. You know, so many people have become you know, quite cynical, and when you become cynical, you can't, the conversation is no longer there. It's fine to be sceptical, but to come at it from a, you know, to keep that conversation open, to keep it moving forwards, and, you know, not make assumptions about what another person thinks or where they're coming from is so vital. Have you always been a Christian? Um, I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, I had a period in my time where I kind of um, disappeared out. I got very disillusioned with the church, or what I would term now as organized religion. And, uh, and I actually came back to it um, later on, Re- once I'd realized that organized religion was not actually um, about the relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And, uh you know and and I remember my mother as a, a child she was never a particularly overtly religious person it was my grandparents actually who gave me more of that sort of Christian upbringing if you like but my my mum used to I mean her father said to her you can worship God in your own backyard and God is way bigger than the church and um and you know that is really the point where I got to in the end I thought well if if I'm disillusioned with some of what I see in the organised religion aspect of it, then it's actually more about my relationship with the Lord God Almighty and what that looks like. That's the important piece of the puzzle, and um, and so that's why I came. Does, to he, put it does again.
0: he? Does he care about us as individuals?
1: Um, I believe, I believe that he does. Yeah, I, that's certainly my experience of it.
0: Great, because. I sometimes wonder if, because I'm recently a Christian, mm. and I've never felt I used to go to Sunday school until I was, I think I was about seven. And I resolved when I was seven that I was an atheist, which is extraordinary. I don't know how this happened. And, um, but this past little while has made me a believer deeply a believer, Mm. and I'm not an expert, I haven't read a lot, Um, but I've seen evil now, Mm. and if there can be evil, there has to be able to be good, Mm. and I've reflected on the evil that I see, and I realize it's against the Bible. And I've seen good Christian people, and I've admired them, and I want to be like them and emulate them. And I realize it's their belief that makes them such good people. And so I happily say now I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I don't, um, I'm no expert, but I'm a believer. And it has, I love, I love, I started, we started saying grace mm. and I've prayed out loud and I simply do it to count my blessings Mm. and when I have friends or family in trouble I'll say I'll pray for you and it's wonderful because what do you say otherwise what can you do Mm. but you can pray for them and I find praying for them a very good feeling and I find grace at night with my family a very good feeling because you just count your blessings and you become a better person And you feel as though there's a world bigger than your world, and just me, me, me. And what makes me happy? It just can't work. But I I struggled with the idea that this omnipotent God, who's everywhere, would care for me, and that I could talk to him. Mm. But I guess that's what being God is about. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, isn't it? I hadn't thought of it that. Because yeah. I felt it was a bit, I don't know, almost, you know, how you think they should. that person should be concerned for me. No, they shouldn't. And I feel as though am I talking to God and he should care for me? But I guess that's the point of being God, is that you do have this almighty presence and power. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of that. Mm. Well, I'm very sorry. We've covered a lot of ground, Sarah, <laughs> and gone places that we didn't expect to go. But isn't that the beauty of conversation?
1: Mm, it is, yeah. It's a, it's a real gift. And I thank you so much for your time, um, Rodney. And um,
0: Well, yeah. I'm just hugely relieved that the Local Government Funding Act isn't a complete disaster because so much that you do in politics and government turns out not as you would have hoped. But um, as you say, people from the bottom and the community and building that resilience from the family through the neighbourhood and the community, that's what's going to get us through. So I thank you for your time. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send us a text, 2057. Email us at inbox at what a wonderful lady, what a wonderful people we have here in New Zealand. Um oh my goodness, we're so blessed. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from ten AM.